In the mid-17th century, 17, or 13th century, 17-year-old Marco Polo boarded a ship and ventured into an amazing journey that would lead him into the empire of China. There he would become the court favorite of the Kublai Khan, and for years, Khan would not even allow Marco to leave the nation because he wanted Marco to act as a representative of the court as he toured through his kingdom. It was throughout this journey that Marco wrote about all that he saw, and in his journal, he described cities that, according to him, made the capitals of Europe look like roadside villages. He wrote of the emperor's palace and how it dwarfed the castles of Europe's elites. He wrote of how the banqueting hall of the king's palace was so large that it could sit 6,000 guests at once, and that they all ate with utensils of pure gold. He also reported massive steel productions, size of which that Europe would not rival for another 400 years. And when Marco was allowed to leave over two decades later, he was said to have been given such belongings that he was able to fill up over 24 ships, and it required over 600 men to journey along with him. Now one thing we don't quite understand, though, is why he only arrived in Venice two years later with eight survivors and one ship. This caused Marco's family and friends to believe that perhaps he was lying. And at the age of 70, as he lay upon his deathbed, they encouraged him to confess if indeed he had fabricated such stories about his adventures. And here comes his, favorite, his famous final words, which he whispered to them, which were, I have not told you the half of all I saw, for, if, if, uh, for I knew I would not be believed. I have not told you the half of all I saw, for I knew I would not be believed. I would hope that most of you have received uh, a copy or a cutout from you all. Uh, I did adopt that strategy from Pastor Latour. Though, unless I am mistaken, I'm the only pastor that was born in the South, I have been uh, accused of speaking and preaching like a Yankee. And so to my fellow Southerners, perhaps I speak quicker and faster than some of our ears like to hear. And so trying to aid a little bit there. Um, Merry Christmas. So hopefully you have that along with you. But nonetheless, as Marco did say, I have not told you the half of all I saw, for I knew I would not be believed over 1,300 years before that. Jesus tells us of something far greater than all the world's most amazing empires, and it is found in his Beatitudes, where he tells us this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is to those blessed creatures whose hearts are pure that Christ promises the greatest of all human desire, and it will be fulfilled in them. That is, that they will see God. And this is not an isolated blessing or an isolated desire in the Scriptures. For instance, David in Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Job in Job 19.25 says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. <clears throat> Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, says this, For now, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, 
looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And lastly, our text for this evening, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. This revolving expectation is what is known um, among scholars as the beatific vision. The beatific vision means that sight that will make happy. This is communicated well by Augustine who says, Because, Lord, you have made us for yourselves, our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. And this desire to see God, to, to gaze upon your Creator, to gaze upon the one who is self-satisfactory, to gaze upon the one who is so kind and gracious as to bestow Himself as the Lord of love upon us, is the central desire of the church. But though as we read through the Scriptures, we find that this is laced throughout the totality of the Bible, and is a, is a longing that is seated within the hearts of the patriarchs and other men, as Job and David and Paul and John, as we have just seen, the issue is that though we do long to see Him, we have to deal with texts that also seem to insinuate that that is absolutely impossible. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. The Scripture reads this, But He said, You cannot see My face, for no man shall see Me and live. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. And perhaps the most difficult is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Uh, he says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. With these things considered, you and I have two questions that we've got to deal with right here. And the first is this, knowing the sinfulness of my own heart, how could I ever hope to see God? And secondarily, if the Scriptures seem to in, in, insinuate that God is invisible and unseeable, is this even a hope worth having in the first place? And the answer to your question, to the question that we are looking at tonight, is resolved in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. It is Christ, who John argues in 1 John 2.12, that He is the one who makes us pure as He has, the Scripture reads, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. It is this same Jesus through whom we are forgiven that Colossians 2.9 says that in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So is this a hope that we can have? First, we can have this hope because we are made pure, not in our own efforts, but through the fact that we have made pure by the efforts of Christ for us. But secondarily, can we see Him at all? And the answer is yes. Christ has robed Himself in human flesh. He has come. He has borne our sin. He has died. He was buried, but He rose again. But not only did He rise again in His flesh, He ascended, as I preached last month. And in His flesh, He sits at the right hand of the Father. So yes, we who are the church, who are redeemed and purified through the blood of Christ, we will be able to see God, and as we stand before Him, we will look Christ, the glorified Son of God, face to face. We will see Him as He is. The beatific vision is the hope that one day we will, because of Christ's work for us, we will stand before Him and behold His glory. And to our mind's fullest capacity, we will know the glorious essence of the Godhead.
we will know him. As greatly as our mind can fathom, we will know him. And as full as our eyes can see, we will gaze upon him. This is the delight of the believer. This is the hope of the church. This is what is seated upon the heart of those who are made pure in heart through Christ's work. We will see him. This is the beatific vision. This is the vision that makes happy. This is the hope of the Christian. This is our joy, our longing, our motivation that one day, as John says, we will see him as he is. And in that day, oh blessed day, we will be made like him. Now with this in mind, I want to speak to you from 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3, concerning the effects of being, as as I will coin it, being beatifically minded or heavenly minded. It has been said, though it's a cliche, that some people can be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. I have yet to meet a single individual who can be that. As we look at here, John encourages Christians in 1 John with the realities of God's adopting love wherein we are ensured of the hope of the beatific vision. As we consider this passage tonight, we will see that being heavenly minded or beatifically minded has three effects upon us. The first effect, and that it will be verse 1, is the fact that it reorients our sense of self. The second point, which is verse 2, is the fact that it recalibrates the affections of the heart. And the third point, which is verse number 3, is it reignites our commitment to holiness. Point 1. Being beatifically minded, or to put it simply, to live in light of the day that we know we will see Him, will cause us to live with a reoriented view of self. The word that Paul or that John uses here for what manner in 1 John 3 1 is only used seven times in your New Testament. And it is always used to imply utter astonishment. So for John, when he considers The love of God, as he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. The excitement that he writes with, this is essentially John writing that when he considers the love of God in adopting Him as His own Son, causes him to, to be utterly flabbergasted, to be blown away to consider the veracity of the love of God, the word carries the meaning of, oh, what glorious and measureless love. And in its origin, it originally was used to mean, of what country is this? So we could interpret that John is simply writing here and saying, this love is so unbelievable, it is so otherworldly, it is so unknown to me, that I wonder what country or land it must have come from because I've never known anything quite like this. That is what John is communicating to us in this text. And when John contemplates the love of God, he is utterly blown away to consider the love of God that has been bestowed upon him and us who believe. One writer, his name is Burdick, writes, God loves the sinner, and it's not because he is drawn to the sinner by his lovableness, the sinner's lovableness, but because in spite of man's unloveliness, God set his mind and his will on seeking man's highest good. This is what is so amazing about God's love. The phrase, has bestowed, that we find in verse 1, or in other translations, if you were reading uh, perhaps the ESV, might read something along the lines of, He has lavished upon us. 
It is important as it conveys the richness and the permanence of the love of God. This communicates the beauty of this gift, that it is not earned or bought, but is given, not to be removed. And what is this love? Well, according to John, it is an adopting love. It is this love that has made us to where we are known as children of God. That we are called the children of God. And and, an interesting thing, in most modern translations, an exclamatory statement follows that. It says that we are called the children of God, and then they often read, and that we are. And this all portrays an act of what some scholars call legitimation, which is a father performing the act of naming his child and thereby making a permanent claim to identity and ownership. Or to put it this way, what John is depicting for us is that this otherworldly, mind-blowing, life-changing love of God wherein He would adopt us is displayed in such a way that he, disp- he, he depicts it as though it is all in His hands. It is all in the hands of the Father in such a way that the security of the child is absolutely assured. Have you contemplated that lately? Have you considered that? The unmerited, the unearned love of God for you That it is not by your works, it is not by your own self-righteousness, but it is by His grace that He loves you. It is by His grace that He knows you as His own. He is not ashamed of us, but is pleased to be called our God. That the otherworldly love of God is unprovoked from start to finish. We do not serve a God who is reactionary. He is not poked or prodded to make to love us. Beloved, there is nothing in us to make us lovable. But as Piper teaches, God is the only being whose self-exaltation is the greatest act of love. And as He has been pleased, He has moved forward to set His love upon us, to make us His own. Not that there was any good in us, but just as an act of His own self-glory, He saved us. Praise be unto the Most High for that. I am often burdened, though, when I consider how far away our Protestant churches have wandered from the beauty of the gospel of grace and how quickly we can, if we are not careful, slide into muddying up the purifying, refreshing, blessed waters of the gospel. It is in these waters that parched lips are refreshed. And when we mix the gospel with the law in such a way that the believer thinks that he might truly please God or earn more satisfaction of God on his life based off his own performance, it is a heartbreaking thing to consider. If you want to be miserable in your Christian life, go ahead and live without making the proper distinctions of the law and gospel. Beloved, this is an unmerited love through and through, and it is only ours because God chose us in Christ, and in Christ we are seen as righteous and are known now and forever as His children. Now, I am aware that such preaching often invokes those who disagree with us to believe that perhaps it it, it warrants sinful or lawless behaviors, but it does not. As a matter of fact, I am confident that where I am standing is fine if it causes such questions to arise because it is exactly this same preaching of grace that calls Paul to anticipate such an argument in Romans 6.1 as he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. 
It is this message of radical free grace that, that, that frees bound sinners to live in righteousness. It is the only means by which we can truly be free to love Him, to serve Him, to adore Him. It is by pondering and living in light of the grace that He has, give us, he has given us in Christ. Now John continues to apply this doctrine of love to the darkness of life as he assures these, belie- these believers that because we have been loved with an otherworldly love and transformed by it, that the world doesn't know us. The world doesn't get us because it doesn't know the lover of our soul. We're an otherworldly people. And so we make the application here and we ask, do you feel downtrodden? Do you feel misunderstood? Do you feel as though in your life at this moment the sun's brightness has been extinguished and that you wander in darkness alone? Have you fallen in sin again and again and you feel as though the love of God must be removed from you? Beloved, do not worry. He loves us with an everlasting love and our security is ensured. And though it might seem that even our closest of friends and relatives might not understand us and that the circumstances of our life compel us to feel abandoned, Look no further than the cross, where he declares his love for us. Gary Burge tells the story of the day he adopted his daughter and how when they made their way to the court, they stood before a judge, and as the judge came out, he sat there in his black robe, he raised his wooden gavel, and with the smack of the gavel, her name was forever changed. He continues and says, If we do not feel like a child of God, it makes no difference. A divine gavel has fallen. It is this relentless love that reorients our sense of self. Because it reminds us of our unworthiness. And yet it causes us to fall to our knees and to gaze upon His lavish grace. This removes all boasting from ourselves. We did not provoke it. There was nothing good that lay within us. We have been ravished by sovereign grace. And because of this, we do not seek the approval of men. We are approved by God in Christ. We do not have to bend to the trends of society. We view life with eternity stamped upon our eyes. And since God has saved us, we have come alive with an eternal hope. And in that is our desire, to behold His glory. The glory of the One who loved us and gave gave Himself for us. How does this beatific vision And this lavish grace work on us, it works on us as we are reminded that we have the expectant hope as pilgrims to reach heaven's shores. And we will reach it. And we will lay eyes on Him. John Piper wrote, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is, as we lead into point two, this work that recalibrates our affections. That we who once hated God have been wooed with love so divine that He now reigns upon the throne of our hearts as the Lord of life and Lord of love. So how does this beatifically, how does this vision of living beatifically work on us? First, it reorients our sense of self. Secondly, being beatifically minded recalibrates our affections. Consider verse 2 as John writes, Beloved, now, now notice that phrase there, now we are the children of God, and how he contrasts it with, yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. In verse 2, I want you to notice that contrast there. And he is essentially insinuating that we are now the children of God. And John is teaching us that, yes, we are now presently the children of God, but that there is something even greater that awaits us. This same John, who is just exploding with unbelievable joy and excitement and thanksgiving, looks at us and says, but wait, there's more. And it's even greater. We cannot quite fathom it. We don't fully know what to expect, but we do know this. That He loves us and we are His children now. And we do know that we will see Him and that when we see Him, we will be made like Him. The love of God is, is, is otherworldly. I can't fathom it. But He writes to them and says, but there's something even greater that awaits us. And we just can't quite explain it. Now, now some of us may have grown up under preaching we're considering the day in which we behold God was preached in such a manner that even Christians were prone to consider that event with fear in their hearts. And there is a healthy fear of that day, but there is one that I believe is almost emotionalistic that many pulpits declare. However, I do not find that to be the case when it comes to the apostles in the early church. For instance, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.13, writes of it as a, as a time of great joy. He says this, But rejoice! To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, because that when he, His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exciting joy, exceeding joy. 2 Timothy 4.8 Paul describes it as a time of rewarding, as he considers it for himself. He says, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, following his discourse on that time, he says that we are to comfort one another with these words. Church, when I preach of the day that we will lay our eyes on Christ, I do not come out here with a Louisville slugger to beat you up with it. Instead, it is a, a bouquet of roses to evoke your heart to praise and excitement over the fact that we will see Him. We will see Him. John's presentation here is no different. He encourages us to look forward to that day as it is then that we will behold Him as He is. We will be made like Him and we will realize the fullness of our adoption. Now why don't you have need to fear? Because you bear His name. Because He has adopted you. Because 1 John 1-2, He has paid for your sins in Christ. When we see Him, 112, when we see Him, whatever is desired there will be present. And as Francis Turretin says, God will be seen without end. Love without disinterest ever growing. He will be praised without weariness. He will be all in all. When we see Him, there will be no more heartache. Isaiah 25, 8 says, He will swallow up death forever and God will wipe away tears from all faces. When we see Him, there will be no more discouragement. Isaiah 35, 10 says this, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When we see Him, we will enjoy satisfaction and rest forevermore. Isaiah 49.10 says, They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for He who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water He will guide them. Now consider that. He is contrasting life in this world in the heat of the day as the sun zaps the energy of the people of God and how it bakes them and how we have faced hunger and how we face thirst. And He says, but there will be a day 
where this one who has mercy on us will lead us by the cool waters. He will guide us there. He will lead us to refreshment on that day. There will be a day where we will find true joy, full satisfaction forevermore. Of this great day, Augustine wrote, Enter in to joy without sorrow, which contains all pleasure, where every good will be, and not any evil, where life will be vital, it will be sweet and lovable, and always memorial, where there will be no assaulting enemy, nor any snares, but supreme and certain certain security, secure tranquility and tranquil pleasure and pleasurable happiness, a happy eternity, eternal blessedness, and the blessed vision of God, which is the joy of the Lord thy God. He says, oh, joy above joy, joy overcoming all joy, joy besides which there is no joy. When shall I enter into thee that I may see my God who dwells in thee? It is of that day wherein we will dwell with Him forevermore that we will enjoy the greatest of splendors. On earth there is nothing that seems to be more sought after than treasures, and so the Scriptures write in such a beautifying way as only our language can communicate to our minds. It adopts our language and it says in Revelation 21.11, Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. On earth, most desire a rich inheritance. Concerning that day, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. On earth, there is nothing more relaxing, perhaps, than walking out in the cool of the morning and sitting in your garden. And of heaven, it says in Revelation 2.7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. On earth, if you have children or have had children, you might can relate. What brings more peace to the child shaking in the discomfort of the darkness of night more than the light of day? But of heaven, Revelation 21-23 says, The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Surely we must not believe that these are all to be understood literally. But what I believe is being conveyed is that in that place where the glory of God will be fully known, there will be no rival to all it offers. There will be no desire lacking. Augustine of that day wrote, Thy God will be wholly thine. He, an entire whole, will possess you entirely whole. Because thou and he will then be one. Beloved, in that day we will be free from the aches of these fallen bodies. We will be delivered from all misery and shame of sins past. We will break free from all sinful bindings. We will in mind see His glory with perfect knowledge. And will walk in absolute holiness. We will be like Him. Not that we will be divine, but we will walk free from sin even as He dwells today. Concerning heaven, Adoniram Judson wrote, When Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. You guys just started school back, so you can relate well, teens. C.S. Lewis says, Has the world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than anything that we will leave behind. 
This is the beauty of the beatific vision church, that we will see him as he is. And in a moment, all of earth's glorious attractions will fade away as though they were absolutely insignificant. In that time, we will be like him. We will be free from sin to serve and adore him forevermore. And the longer I know him, the more in my heart I ache over the fact that I don't hate my sin more than I long to. And one day I won't have to dread that fact. I will hate sin with a perfect hatred, but it will be completely absent from me. What a glorious day that will be. I will not any longer obey him with tinted loyalty, but it will be absolute pure service and pure glory given to him. And longing to see Christ as he is, we will learn to examine the world in a better light. And that leads to my final point, which is that being beatifically minded reignites our commitment to holiness. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One question we might ask is, why doesn't God just take us to be with Him on the day He saves us? Why doesn't He just free us from the heartache of this world? Or we might wonder, why, Lord, do You continue to delay this vision of Your glory? Now, there are many correct responses, and we can, we can preach a whole sermon upon that. But one writer correlating our longing to that of someone trying to trying to open up a bag wide enough to fit a large item inside of it. If perhaps you have begun your, your Christmas shopping now, as you try to open up those shopping bags to fit that big plastic piece of garbage for your kids down in there, uh, it, it is essentially saying, he, he writes, that, that, God, that this is how God stretches our desire. That the longer we dwell in this world, He is, he is stretching our longing. Through delay, He stretches our soul through desire and He makes it large enough by stretching it. Or, to say it how we say it here, absence just makes the heart grow fonder. And in considering the beatific vision, our hearts are made to pursue, pursue holiness in light of the expectant hope of Christ. Now, here in 1 John 3.3, 3, we find that we are called to purify ourselves. This is not teaching that we are in some way to be pursuing justification through our efforts at sinlessness. John has taught through his letters in places such as 1 John 1 that we have been initially purified by the blood of Christ. Rather, what we are seeing here is that we are, uh, we are seeing here is that the more we who are saved walk with the Lord in this expectant hope, the more conscious we will become of our sin and the more eager we will be in striving by the power of the Holy Spirit. To make war with our sin. Put it simply, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more aware we will be of our sinfulness and the more we will desire to make war upon that sin. The closer I get to Christ, the more sinful we will feel. Was it not Peter who upon that boat following the miracle of Christ says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The closer we get to Him and the more we marvel at His glory, the more we see our sin and the more we abhor it. Now, Dr. Matthew Barrett over at Midwestern Seminary writes this, Out of what spirit then should such a consecration occur 
he, he brings up a pilgrim. He says, the pilgrim on his way to see the king does not say out of a spirit of reluctance, well, I suppose I must prepare myself for the king, as though he is sacrificing something better to enter into the king's palace. Instead, he says out of a spirit of exuberance, I cannot believe I have the privilege of entering into the presence of the king. I must prepare to meet him. The pilgrim who believes his king is waiting on his arrival does not run out of mere duty, but out of expediency. Catch this. Godliness is galvanized by the chance that he, a mere mortal, might see the king of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God to whom glory or to, to whom belong honor and glory forever and ever. It is with such a desire that I consider Paul, where he says in, in Philippians, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, are we at war with our sin? Are we, as one Puritan writer expressed, grieved by the sinfulness of sin? Are you striving against your sin? We must be aware of how sly sin is and how quickly it can dwell within us, often undetected. Do you let the smile of Christ upon you or the expectation of one day hearing, well done, do you allow that to stir your heart and motivate you to press forward to that day? Beloved, the question I have here tonight is, is Jesus Himself the catalyst of your Christian walk by which you are motivated? Is Jesus Himself the catalyst for faithfulness in the Christian walk? Jesus Himself. John Piper, again, he writes really well concerning the beatific vision. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. This is one of the most convicting questions I perhaps could ever have, have read concerning heaven. He says this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisurely activities you ever, enjoy, ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever experienced, and no human conflict or any natural desires. Could you be satisfied with that heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with that heaven if Christ were not there? What this doctrine centers upon, this doctrine I am preaching tonight, is not that we are centering it upon some really nice place, some relaxing place, free from troubles, Rather, it centers upon Christ in whom we find all delights. And because He is there, all those other things merely follow behind as fruits of His dwelling. Christ. Christ is heaven. And wherever Christ might be, there heaven resides for us. As we conclude our time together tonight, I would like to ask whether you have found yourself delighting in Christ, longing for Christ, pursuing Christ, or whether you have found yourself seemingly bored with Christ or the thought of eternity with Him. In a sermon years ago, I wrote concerning lukewarmness that it must be one of the greatest travesties for the Christian 
Because essentially lukewarmness declares this, God, I believe you're there, but you just don't excite me anymore. Does he excite you? Have you pondered upon him? The fact that you will one day with resurrected bodies and with strengthened minds, glorified minds, you will gaze upon him, Christ, and you will know with the fullness of our glorified capacities, you will know the essence of God. You will know him. We will see him clearly. Faith will fade away and we will glory we will see him. We will see him. I want to call you tonight in light of this passage to ask God to use this text to rekindle your zeal for him that you would bask in the love of God and in turn find him as the catalyst by which you will relentlessly pursue him until that final day. And as he does that, may we find ourselves appreciating the means of grace as they were a foretaste of that day. As we gather around the Lord's table, though not tonight, it is a foretaste of that supper divine with which we will sit with him. May we find ourselves encouraged to evangelize those around us as we are simply awestruck at the fact that we are actually marching forward to see the king. And may we find our days filled with bright hope in anticipation for the day that we will see Jesus. This truth that He is alive and that forevermore takes the sting out of death as He has conquered it for us. It is this doctrine that gives bright hope for tomorrow that we are the children of God and we will one day be with Him forevermore and it is this doctrine that we should serve that should serve as a lens by which we estimate what we value in our daily lives. I'll say that one more time. It is this doctrine that serves as a lens through which we estimate what we place value on in our daily lives. Revelation 22.4, they shall see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. We shall see Him as He is. May this excite us. May the Lord use this for persevering and preserving grace in our life as we are pilgrims marching home to see our most beloved Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you have blessed us with, Lord, and the scriptures wherein you have given unto us your people. We ask, Lord, that this evening you would be exalted in our hearts and in our lives. May you truly be our heart's affection, the centerpiece of our life. May you sit upon the throne of our heart's deepest yearnings and desires. May we want Christ, not merely the benefits that chase along beside you, but I want you more. I want to long for you more, yearn for you more, to dive into the heart of the gospel. You are the gospel. May we taste more of you here tonight. May we long for the day wherein we will all together with glorified bodies and minds gathered together to sing of your excellency and to join together as the church Catholic universal to adore you together forever and ever. How we long for that day and how I long to long for it more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.